The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. ...message on this very important text where Jesus gave his disciples the mission that would consume the rest of their lives. This is the command for them to evangelize. It's the command to make new citizens of the kingdom of Christ. And as we'll see today, it's a command that is not fully complete until those who are brought into God's kingdom are also brought into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, What I want to do today mainly is to emphasize the church and what God has given the church to do and what parts of the commission that belong to the church. Now, before, though, we read the text today, I want to point out once again that the mandate of this commission is to make people worshipers of the one true God. And if Jesus Christ is not the one true living God, then then this commission that he gave has no need and Jesus becomes the most preposterous fool that world has ever seen for saying these things. This commission is a declaration of the exclusivity of Christianity. It declares men to be sinners who need to be returned to the rightful purpose, to the main purpose, to the only purpose for which man has been created, and that is for the glory of the true living God. The salvation of sinners is... First of all, for God's glory. And that is what makes the commission the most important work that the church can do. Now, if you look in the scriptures at Matthew 28, verse number 16, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. Remember, this is right after the resurrection. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now very briefly, I want to give you the first four points of our outline. Now, we're not going to be able to spend any time here because those four points consume three sermons. I don't think you want to sit through all of that again. So we'll just mention what these points were. The first of them was the engagement, and that involves the place in Galilee where Jesus said that he would meet his disciples to give them this commission. Next, we looked at the enthrallment, And that was the recognition of the risen Lord as the one who is to be worshipped. That he is the Lord Jehovah God. He's the same as the Old Testament God who met Moses at the burning bush. He is the incarnate God who came to this earth in the flesh, who died for sin and then arose from the grave. And then thirdly, we looked at the elevation of him. And that is the claim of authority because he is God, he reigns supreme as the king of his kingdom. Heaven and earth and all the creatures that are therein are subjects of his dominion. And so this is his claim to deity, that he is God above all gods, and he has the right to demand obedience to his commands. 
And the resurrection of Christ was the signal that the work of redemption had been accomplished by Christ. And upon the authority of the Father, authority was transferred to him. The highest authority is transferred to him because of that work of redemption. And this actually is the first of two Trinitarian statements that we find in this text. Then fourthly, we discuss the emphasis. And the emphasis is the important operative word that's in the commission. And it's not the word go, as many people teach, is the imperative of it. But rather, rather it's the word teach, which is a word that means to make disciples. It comes from the word that is a disciple, to make disciples. And disciples are those that have true saving faith, which means that they have recognized their brokenness and their sinfulness and their helplessness, and they come to Jesus Christ as the only one who can help them. They understand there is no one to save them but Christ, and so they repent of their sins, they turn to him as the master and Lord of their lives. Now, in short, that is what we call lordship salvation. There isn't any separation in this text between saving faith and becoming a disciple of Jesus. These are one and the same thing. And so the command is to make disciples of all nations. Everyone should hear the gospel of Christ. There are no exclusions according to race or ethnicity or nationality or economics. And we'll find that when we reach heaven, heaven is going to be populated by a vast multitude of people from every kindred, kindred, tribe, race, and tongue. So Jesus is telling the disciples here that Gentile nations also would be brought into the covenant of God's grace, and they were to push the gospel out beyond the borders of Israel, and it was to go beyond the Jews of the dispersion, and they were to take the gospel to Romans and to Greeks and to Egyptians and to Europeans and to Indians, to every country of the world. The gospel is to be preached. When Jesus repeated the commission in Acts chapter 1, he said, But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, unto the uttermost part of the earth. And very soon, the disciples began to obey that commission. It was a very difficult one. It was a difficult physical challenge at first. Perhaps even more, it was a mental challenge them, to them because what they had to do was to change the paradigm of Jewish superiority. They had to be changed to accept Gentiles as equal in the kingdom of God. And it took a while for them to reach that understanding. Uh, the apostles would have been very well content if they just stayed in Jerusalem. Just give the gospel to Jewish people and they would have been happy to do that. So God had to change their minds about it. And he did it in a very difficult way. He allowed persecution to come upon them. And it was that persecution that drove them out of their complacency that they had in Jerusalem. And that's when they began to preach the gospel to the rest of the world. And so the emphasis of the commission is make disciples. Make disciples at any personal cost. And it cost the apostles, every one of them, their lives doing what Jesus told them to do. Well, we're ready to move on now to the next part of our study. And the next part is about who, to whom, was this commission given. So number five in your outline today is the 11. We want to look at the 11. Now, we know who the gospel is for. 
Jesus said that all nations are to hear the gospel. It's for all nations. But who is the commission for? Who is this commission given to? Well, the obvious answer for most people is the commission of Christ is given to everyone who is a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. That every person has a responsibility to give people the gospel of Christ. And certainly that would become true. That's true today. That as members of the Lord's church, we are to give the gospel of Christ to everyone. But that was not true relating to the commission given to the disciples at this particular time. This commission is given to the eleven. Jesus is very specific about it. He tells us who is, he is entrusting his work to. And that point is very important for us to get the right understanding because the implications of this part of it, who is the commission given to, go to the very heart and core of what the church is. And who has the responsibility for preaching the gospel. Now we go back to verse number 10. And in verse 10 it says, Then Jesus said unto them, Be not afraid, go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there they shall see me. Now, Jesus spoke those words to the women that were at the tomb. And then in verse number 16, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. Now, Jesus was very specific about who he wanted to be in Galilee. Uh, he didn't say to the women, I I'm going to see all of you later. I want you to go tell the men, and then I want all of you to be sure that you get there to meet me at the appointed place in Galilee. Now, Jesus was especially concerned that the eleven would be there. Now, we do believe that there were many more that came. Many more people showed up there. Uh, the others are most likely ones that Paul referred to in 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 6, where you remember the apostle is speaking there about the proofs that Christ had arisen from the grave. And one of the statements that he made was that Jesus was seen by above 500 people at one time. And that was an important statement, that he was seen by so many people. But the focus of the Matthew passage is not those 500 people that also showed up there. Jesus was concerned about the 11 because he had a message that was specifically designed for them. And so he didn't tell the women to be sure that they got everybody. Just pass the word around. Tell everybody who's ever heard the gospel, everyone who's ever heard about me, tell all of them to meet me in Galilee. And no doubt the word did spread that Jesus would be there. I mean, after all, it was women that were telling the story, so it's bound to have spread. And so it passed on to many other people, and, and they hoped to have a glimpse of Jesus. Now, can you imagine how exciting that that must have been to see the Lord after he had risen from the dead? To go into Galilee and uh, know that Jesus had promised to be there, that he was raised and he had guaranteed your eternal salvation because he came out of the grave. How exciting would it have been to go to Galilee? I think if we'd been there and heard he was going to be there, we would go too. We would make sure that we were there to see him. But Jesus was not concerned about all these other people at that time. They were needed. They were needed as added proof to his resurrection, but they're not needed for the commission at this time. And they weren't the ones to receive it. But instead, there was a very specialized group. There was a specific group. And these are the ones that were chosen to be his apostles. And then I might say this as well. 
that it was not a commission given to the apostles, to the eleven, as individuals. So Jesus did not say, Gee, uh, Peter, it, you're the leader of this group, and it's your responsibility to make sure that you disciple the nations. And he didn't say to John, he didn't say to uh, uh, James or say to Matthew, now you guys, you have that responsibility, so let's fan out, let's get out of here, let's go where we're going to go, get out, get out in all different directions and start preaching this gospel. Now at this particular time, the gospel is centralized. The gospel is concentrated into these 11 men as a group. Now the disciples, uh, the scripture says that the 11 went and we see them together, uh, in that way it means the group. Now later on, Matthias was going to be chosen to replace Judas, the one who betrayed Christ and who had killed himself, and so Matthias was going to replace him. And then later we have the twelve. And whenever you see twelve, that means the group. Acts chapter 6, verse 2 says, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them, and in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5, where Paul talks about the resurrection, he says he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, then of the twelve. And so when you see eleven or you see twelve, then you need to concentrate on this, that the scriptures are emphasizing the group and not the individuals. Now you may be sitting there thinking, why is that so important? Why are you stressing this, that we're talking about the group and not the individuals? Well, I'm stressing it because these men represent the body of Christ that is the church, the very first church. In 1 Corinthians 12, 28, it says, And God hath set some in the church first apostles. So the apostles are the first ones that are in the church, and Jesus spoke to them as his church. In Matthew 16, 18, he spoke to them as his church when he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that is a very highly important passage for the fulfillment of the commission. Jesus said he would build his church, and these men were the building blocks of that church. And so it was the church in Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus spoke to them. It was the church in Matthew 28, in the passage that we're reading. And I know it's very popular to say, well, no, that's not the church. That the church didn't start until the day of Pentecost. But I don't see that here. I see 11 men that the Bible says are first in the church. They're chosen by Christ, especially for this purpose. They are to receive this commission. And the church is the foundation of the apostles, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the doctrines of the prophets, and Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Ephesians, Paul writes about this. He says, Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And listen to verse 20. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now that's the consistent word that we have of Scripture. All of us are members of the Lord's body, or as we are members of the Lord's body, we are followers of these apostles that God set first in the church. We're built upon the foundation of those men. And so these are 11 men chosen by Christ. They were baptized, and they were functioning as a church before Pentecost. They had a commission given by Christ before Pentecost. And they were told to wait for the Holy Spirit to come who would energize them 
to do the work that they were called to do. Now it's very important for us to see this and to recognize that when Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church, that that has tremendous implications for the gospel itself. When he spoke to these collective men as the whole, as his body, and by extension to all those that are added to the Lord's body by their witness, by the preaching of the gospel, that we recognize that the church is a perpetual church because the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And since the commission is given to the church, what does that make the commission? It makes it also a perpetual commission, which means that the gospel of Christ is not going to go away not until Jesus Christ comes himself to take his people home to be with him. Now that's reflected in verse number 20 where he says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Now these, this gospel was not given to these men as individuals. It's given to them as a church because if it hadn't been, then the gospel would have died out when they died. It is perpetual because it's entrusted to this body, this institution of the church. And that's the guarantee that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, the institution of the church. That makes the commission itself a lasting commission. Well, the individuals that Christ spoke to here, if he had given the commission to them, they weren't going to be here that long. They're not going to be here till Christ comes again. And so that means that the gospel is only going to be alive and well as it's given to the institution, as it's given to the church itself. That's what makes the commission lasting. Well, that also has profound implications for the parts of the commission. Now, we notice here that Jesus told these men to baptize and to teach. Aren't those within the purview of the church? Did Jesus tell you as an individual to baptize? Do you have the authority to do that? Are you allowed to dunk your next door neighbor in your swimming pool and to make your swimming pool the neighborhood baptistry? Are you allowed to do that? Do you have the authority to do that? Well, there are many reasons why you don't have that authority. Can you imagine how confusing it would be for us to determine who has a valid baptism of just anybody and everybody could baptize? And it's because people misunderstand this authority. Who actually has the authority to do it that sometimes we do run into this. And so we find people that are baptized by this group or that group. People are baptized by parachurch organizations. Some of them are baptized by campus ministries and by youth organizations. And we have to ask the question, where did they get that authority? There was one father who told me, I baptized my children in the bathtub. And I have to ask, where did you get that authority? You see, that's a problem. It's a problem when you think that the commission is given to an individual instead of given to the church. That is the church's commission. And the same problem arises with the command to teach in verse number 20. Who has the authority to teach the word of God? Well, let me give you a hint about that. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, he wrote, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. What a statement. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. 
Now we take just a moment to look at the profundity of the truth that the church is entrusted with. What is this truth that's held by the church? In 2 Timothy, Paul said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Now there we see a profound responsibility. The ability to instruct from Scripture is so weighty that the Bible says that the Scriptures have the ability, the thing that it's taught is able to make the person who hears it righteous. It's able to make the person to be able to do all good works that God requires. Now Paul's statement that the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth will take teaching out of the realm of the individual himself, out of the realm of someone who knows nothing other than some kind of mystical body, some mystical invisible church, and therefore they have the responsibility of teaching the truth of the word. And let me say this as I'm passing this, that the church is a body. The church is a visible body. There, there isn't any such thing as an invisible body. Yet that's what you hear taught. God is an invisible spirit, and the reason that Christ came in the flesh was to have a body so that he could be visible. So that we could see God in the flesh, that God is with us. When Christ was resurrected, he was resurrected with a visible body. And when you get to heaven, it's going to be that body that you see. And that body of Jesus Christ will continue to be the manifestation of the invisible God. When you get to heaven, you're going to see Jesus Christ, who is the invisible manifestation of the invisible God, the manifestation of the Father. And then when you get to heaven, it won't be uh, that you're going to have an invisible spirit. You will also have a body. And that's because your body is going to be raised, it's going to be perfected, it's going to be glorified. And there it will join your spirit in heaven. Now it's a misnomer for sure to say that individuals spread all over the world could be a body. Well, they might be body parts, but they're not a body. It's not until they're assembled into one place that they're a body. And folks, that's who the commission is given to. It's given to the body of Christ, the visible body, just like you see here in this church. Now note that, and then let's return to the main point. If the individual is the church, then why can't you baptize? Why can't you be the pillar and ground of the truth? Well, can you imagine how much chaos would be if you as the individual was the pillar and ground of the truth? Now, what we're talking about here is something that's commonly taught all over in churches just about everywhere, a commonly accepted thing that when you speak of an individual Christian, you call him the church. The Bible does not call an individual Christian the church. The church is the body, the collected body, just like the 11. And so, could you have that responsibility? You could say, well, I'm all right with that. I'm all right with being the pillar and ground of the truth. Is that a burden that you can bear? Well, most Christians can't even articulate the basic items of the faith, the basic doctrines of the faith. So you say, well, I'm okay with that. I can bear the responsibility of teaching all things that are good for doctrine, for reproof, and for righteousness. No, folks, right there, what you have found is the breeding ground of heresies. You have found the breeding ground of the cults and, of the div and division in the church. Because whenever somebody splits off from the body as an individual and claims authority as an individual, what happens is that the gospel is diluted and the gospel is even destroyed. 
of the gospel is a commission intended to be given to the authority of the church of Christ, the New Testament church. So this means, and strap yourself in for it, this is what it means. It means that Campus Crusade for Christ is not given the authority of the gospel. It means that YWAM is not given the authority of the commission. It means that there is no parachurch organization that has the authority. In fact, you don't find any of those in the New Testament scriptures. The only thing that you find with the authority of preaching the gospel is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the authority for preaching starts with the commission given to the apostles as the first church and then that is transmitted to new churches that are organized in different localities. And then those churches carry on the commission. They're to preach, to baptize, to teach new converts. And no one else has the authority. Now you take a look at what happens when someone usurps the authority of the commission. I'll tell you what you get. You get things like this. One of the most popular things, one of the most popular tracts that's ever been printed in the United States of America and around the world, what you get is this. You get the four spiritual laws of Campus Crusade. And that is nothing but gospel reductionism. Now listen to this comment by Paul Washer. He wrote, The four spiritual laws and sinner's prayer are not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that methodology and evangelism has done more to hurt this country than every heresy introduced by every cult combined. Millions of people in this country whose lives have never been changed believe themselves born again because we have so reduced the gospel of Christ that it means nothing more than a simple decision that will take only five minutes of your time. Now we'll talk more about the gospel itself in the concluding messages in the book of Matthew. Those messages are entitled the gospel of the commission. But what I want you to understand today is who has this gospel been committed to? It is committed to the church. The eleven are the Lord's church, and they receive the commission as the church, and then it's transmitted to the membership of the church as new churches are being formed, and they carry on the gospel. It's given to visible bodies in particular locations, just like the Berean Baptist Church of Rotor Park, California. And so the promise of Christ is for a perpetual church. The commission is given to a perpetual church. And so from that first church in Jerusalem to this church on this city corner, the authority of the commission is still alive and well in New Testament churches. Now I need to go on to the next part of the commission. And now I want to talk to you about the education the education in the commission. Now we notice in this text that there are, there are two more parts to the commission. I only have time for one of these today and we'll resume in the next message with the other one. But in verse number 19, there is baptizing and in verse number 20, there is teaching. Now, I've already pointed out to you the difference in verse 20 and the earlier verse, verse 19, where we see teach and teaching. These are two different words in the Greek. Now we're dealing with the second one of these words. And we naturally put teaching under the heading of education. Because all of us know that teaching is for education. That's how you learn. You have a teacher. Now, we might think that baptism would go into a different category. And certainly there are some who would want to put it in a different category because they want to connect it to salvation itself. And they'll tell you that Baptism goes above everything else because baptism is the thing that washes your sins away. 
That baptism is the means of your salvation. That is the sacramentarian view. But baptism is not salvation. And it's rightly put under the heading of education because baptism is something that is to be taught to a new convert to someone who has already been saved. So that's first. We want to talk about baptizing. Now the priority of the commission is to make disciples and baptizing and teaching are subordinate to discipleship. And we also have to remember that inherent in discipleship, inherent in true saving faith, is the desire to follow Jesus Christ. There is a desire that's put in the heart. Saving faith includes a desire that you are going to serve Christ and follow every command. A true disciple never stops short of that. He doesn't refuse to accept Christ's lordship over his life. And this is one of the reasons that we teach that you really shouldn't count converts until they have expressed the desire to follow Christ by being baptized. But there are many that count converts without baptism because there are many gospel presentations that never really get to the heart of the necessity of following Christ. There isn't anything said about following Christ, and so there isn't any mention about baptism. I mean, it's much, much easier to get an affirmative answer to a question, do you want to be saved? Do you want to go to heaven? Do you, or would you rather go to hell? It's much easier to get an affirmative answer, yes, I want to go to heaven, if you don't say anything at all about obedience. If you don't say anything about repentance, then you can get positive answers all the time. But then on the other hand, you do have many Baptist churches that recognize that they need a little bit of assurance themselves. They need some assurance that their converts are actually real. And so they turn into baptismal mills. They rush people into baptism and count them as converts in order to help keep up with all the other churches that are baptismal mills. Many years, I, years ago, I consulted with a church that led the United States in baptisms. For every year, they baptized more than 800 people. 800 people every year, and yet the membership of that church stayed the same. And after four years, uh, adding up these converts and allowing for generous attrition rates, that church should have grown by at least 2,500 people. But the church never grew. Well, this was a church that would never say that their converts weren't real. They weren't going to say that they were baptizing people that were still lost instead of, un of uh, born-again believers. They would never say, they're not believers. But they say, oh, they don't follow Christ because they're just carnal Christians. That's why they don't follow Christ. But if you investigate, you find that practically none of these people show any signs that they're actually Christians at all. That they have any true, that they've ever been truly converted to Christ. Jesus said, make disciples. And real disciples are people who understand the gospel. They have repented of their sins. They've been brought to saving faith. They recognize that Christ is the Lord. And that recognition produces a real change in their lives. They're not what they were before. They are different people. That's because they have saving faith. Now understand that this is in no way an affirmation that baptism helps to save anyone. But I am saying that a person who refuses to be baptized, one who refuses to obey the Lord's commandment, has failed. Listen to me carefully. They have failed the first test of real conversion. 
You have failed the first test of real conversion if you have not been baptized. Now, if you've been taught to obey the Lord, and you've been taught about baptism, and you refuse to be baptized and obey the Lord, then how are you going to claim that you are actually saved? Those things don't add up. Obviously, there are mitigating circumstances. Some are saved on their deathbeds. They can't be baptized. Some are saved as invalids. A few years ago, there was a man that wanted me to baptize him, but there was no way to get him into the baptistry. He was in a wheelchair. He weighed about 300 pounds or so. There was no way to get him into the baptistry and get him back out, so he never was baptized. There are some people who are saved by reading a tract, or they've been given a Bible, and there isn't anybody to baptize them. But then on the other hand, I've met people that had nobody to baptize them, and what they did was practically move heaven and earth to find somebody who was qualified to do it because they recognized the importance of the command. And I would say that the vast majority of people who come to Christ, who have heard the gospel of Christ, they believe him, they have baptism available to them through a New Testament church. And so they can't offer any real excuse for not being baptized, being baptized, except this. They're not real converts. And that points out the importance of baptism. And notice notice uh, the important connection here of baptizing to the word that comes before it, that word teach, which means to make disciples in this case. We are to baptize the one who has been made a convert, and we are to continue to teach that person. Well, you ought to be able to see a restriction here. The person who is baptized has to be someone who has come to faith in Christ. It is a faith that he understands. It is a cognitive faith. And so the person who is baptized has to be capable of understanding in order to be taught. Well, that would immediately exclude a certain class of people. The unregenerate can't be baptized. An adult who has not received Christ as Savior is excluded from this. A person must be a disciple. Faith precedes baptism, which means that salvation precedes baptism. I've also had people come to the church and they say, they just come in for the first time and they say, well, I want to be baptized. And I say, why do you want to be baptized? Well, I just need this renewal. I, you know, I just need to feel a little bit better about myself. I, I think I'd feel good if I got baptized. And would you baptize me? No, I won't baptize you. You've got to be a believer in Jesus Christ to be baptized. You want to be made new? Believe in him. Uh, faith in him, that's important. That precedes baptism. Well, we have many examples in Scripture where... Uh, people were saved without baptism. The thief on the cross would be a notable. He couldn't be baptized. And yet Jesus said to him, Today I'm going to see you in paradise. Jesus saved him. He didn't say, Well, I'm sorry, you're not going to be in paradise with me today because you have to be baptized first. Jesus didn't say that. He made nothing other than repentance and faith necessary for salvation. And so the order of this... The order of salvation tells us that no one but a believer can be baptized. And so that excludes baptism to any person that is capable of understanding, yet has not yet received Christ by faith. Well, in the class of the unregenerate, there is also another group. We are not to baptize infants. And that's because infants have not met the requirement of understanding the gospel. They haven't placed their faith in Christ. We don't have a scripture anywhere that says that we are to baptize infants. We don't even have an inference of a scripture anywhere that says we are to baptize infants. I want to quote to you from William Hendrickson. 
who oddly enough believed in infant baptism. But I want you to listen to his quote on Matthew 28, 19. He said, the context makes very clear that Jesus is here speaking about those who are old enough to be considered the objects of preaching. He is not here speaking about infants. To be ready for baptism requires repentance, Acts 2.38 and Acts 2.41. It requires receiving the word, Acts 2.41. This also shows that a certain amount of teaching must precede being baptized. Well, that's a mighty powerful statement for somebody who believed in infant baptism. It's a little bit incongruous, I would say. But let me show you from Acts chapter 8 a demonstration of how this is supposed to work. If you will, turn to Acts chapter 8. And this is where we find the story of Philip the Evangelist as he preached to the Ethiopian eunuch. And I want to break into the story as Philip got into his chariot. And this man was reading from the book of Isaiah, but he didn't understand what he was reading about. And so Philip began to explain. This is in Acts 8 verse number 30. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this, Isaiah 53, by the way. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now here is a gospel presentation where there is true faith, and there is also instruction about baptism. Now, if Philip had not told him about baptism, then the eunuch never would have asked, well, here is water, can I be baptized? Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized. So what Philip says, if you understand this, if you believe, if you understand what this is about, if you are committed to this, then you can be baptized. So what we find here is Philip doing everything that the commission requires. There must be faith. That's evident by the understanding of the gospel. Now notice something else about his baptism. Going back to verse 38. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. Now you see, they both went down into the water, both came back up out of the water. What does that teach? Well, that teaches the biblical method of baptism. He was immersed. He was put under the water. He was dipped. He was plunged. That is exactly what the word baptism means. There isn't a Greek scholar who says that this word baptized does not mean immersion. Even the reformers who believed in sprinkling 
knew that this meant to immerse. Now, I have something sad to tell all lovers of the King James Version, and we certainly are. We respect the King James Version, but the translators would have saved us a whole lot of trouble if they'd not stuck with the convention of transliterating some Greek words instead of trans translating them. So what they did was they anglicized this Greek word, baptizo, into an English word and made it baptism. But if they had done what they should have done and just translated it, what it means, and put there immersed, then we wouldn't have been talking about this. We wouldn't have to. But they had a motive. They had a motive to transliterate it. And the transliteration leaves room for other modes, for other ways to be baptized. But there isn't any other scriptural mode. There is no other way. And the church recognized that for centuries. There's only one way to baptize. But by the time that the King James translators made the translation, they were, people were already sprinkling and they were using effusion, which means to pour on people. That was commonly being practiced, and so the translators didn't want to get into that controversy. And in fairness to them, the translations preceding the King James Version also transliterated the word. They didn't use the word immerse. And so they just followed the convention of transliterating this word baptize. But we see it here in the scripture what it means. Another example that shows the biblical method is immersion is found in Matthew chapter 3. And this is at John the Baptist's baptisms. In John 3, verse number 5, Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea, that is to John the Baptist, and all the region round about Jordan, and they were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Anybody know what Jordan is? It's a river, isn't it? Jordan is a river. Do you need a river of water to sprinkle people? Matthew 3, Jesus, following this in verse 13, was baptized himself. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. That means he allowed him to be. And Jesus, when he was baptized, listen, went straightway up out of the water. Jesus went straight up out of the water. Why? Because he was in the river, and he'd just been immersed. And then we have this explanation of what baptism represents in Romans chapter 6, where Paul says, Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now that passage teaches that baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the person that affirms that he believes in the atoning sacrifice of Christ is baptized, showing that he believed that Jesus died for sin, that he went into the tomb, and that he arose again for our justification. Well, how would you ever show somebody going into a tomb by pouring a cup of water on his head? You don't see people out in the cemetery with a few grains of dirt or pieces of dirt sprinkled on top of the body, and they're laying on top of the ground because they've been sprinkled with dirt, and now we say they're buried. That's not how you bury people. You put them in the ground. 
So you can't picture that by pouring water on their head. And so we have many scriptural examples to show us this, that what we have is a believing disciple, we have immersion, and we have a picture of the gospel itself, the death, burial, and resurrection. One more scripture I'll give you, John 3, 23. And John also was baptizing in Enon near to Salem. Why? Because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. Why did John need much water when all he really needed was half a bottle of Aquafina? That would have been fine. You could have just use that. Well, we're getting a little bit late here. Uh, there's still a lot more that I want to discuss about baptism. And what I want you to see also is the formula of baptism. How, what are we supposed to say when we baptize people? But I'm going to save that for next time. And we'll discuss more of this as we talk about the command to educate. So let me just leave you with this for today. The commission given by Christ to his church is the most important command that he gave. It is a promise of perpetuity that he gave to the church, which also guarantees the perpetuity of the commission. The way he chose to make the church survive was not to crush all of his enemies. That's not what he did. It was not to make it last by making the disciples themselves live forever so they could keep on preaching the gospel of Christ. They wouldn't have wanted that. The Apostle Paul said it's far better to depart this life and to be with Christ. They wouldn't have wanted to stay here forever. The way that Christ chose to make his church survive until he returns is for us to preach the gospel of the kingdom and to keep making converts. And the gospel, or the church rather, is not going to die out because Christ has people that he will save in every generation. And they will come to him when the gospel is preached, but they're not going to be saved in any other, any other way, and they're not going to come any other way. And so for this church to survive, the gospel has to be our mission. We have the authority of Christ to preach. It's given to the church. We go out under the authority of our church and we send others out, missionaries out, under the authority of the Lord's church. And let me tell you something, you need to be a part of that. You need to be a part of that in order to fulfill the commission that God has given. You cannot do it any other way than being a part of the Lord's church. Let me return just, what, just briefly for a second to baptism. Baptism is the way in to a multitude of commands that Christ has given. There is so much that Christ does through his church. In fact, everything that the Lord does is through his church. There isn't anything else. There isn't any other way that he does things but through his church. So if you haven't been baptized, you're not a part of the church, you have no possibility of following all these other commands that Christ has given. That comes first. That shows your obedience to him. That permits you, if you're uh, coming to the supper tonight, that permits you to the supper of Jesus Christ through your baptism and membership of your church. No others get that privilege. It's very important. You need to be a part of it. If you're going to fulfill the great commission, then you need to be a part of the Lord's church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for this great institution of your church that you left us with. You've given us a great responsibility. You brought us into your church for this purpose to preach the gospel to people. And also, Lord, just to tell them how to observe all the commands that you have given. And we can't do that unless we are a part of your church. 
Lord, I pray that you would lay it upon the hearts of your people today to take the responsibility, not to take it lightly, but to take it very seriously because the souls of men and women, of boys and little girls and everyone hangs on this. Do they believe the gospel of Jesus Christ that has been committed to the church? Help us, Lord, to see that great responsibility. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.